Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in the negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we continue with our series called Inside the Mind of an Acquirer. Now, we started this special series of interviews with acquirers because we wanted you to understand what's inside of the head of the people across from you in a negotiation to buy your business. And this week, we sat down with Bakari Akil, who acquired two $30 million businesses and now teaches Cornell MBA candidates about entrepreneurship through acquisition. Just to note, this interview goes deep on Small Business Administration, or SBA, loans in the U.S. Now, I've put some links to the SBA program for acquirers in the show notes, and if you're outside of the United States, I've also included links to some similar programs in different countries, and you can find those on Bakari's episode page at builttosell.com. Without further ado, let's jump into today's episode of Inside the Mind of an Acquirer with Bakari Akil. Enjoy. Bakari Akil, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you, John. It's great to have you here. You're in the business of buying companies, and obviously, mm. our listeners want to sell their company. And so, mm. today is really about trying to get inside your head from the lens of what do you look for? How do you structure deals when you go to buy a company so that our audience can understand, okay, from the acquirer's mind or from the acquirer's side, here's what they're looking for. Here are the moves they're likely to make, et cetera. So walk mm. us through how you got into the world of buying companies. Just take us through your journey. So from my background, currently completed two acquisitions, um, completed two deals. The first um, is I bought a uh, a burlap bag manufacturing company in New Jersey called NYP Corp. I did that deal in partnership with a private equity firm. The company was around 30 million in revenue, a decent size of that in, uh, in profits as well. Very successful business um, owned by two brothers who were interested in making an exit having, actually the business was founded in 1946. So it was their father's company and they ended up taking it over themselves. The year before that, I completed an acquisition of an educational technology company. That one is around 30 million in revenue as well, around $3 million in annual profit. So another very successful company. And so that's been my background. Not only that, um, I also teach uh, entrepreneurship through acquisition. So I teach MBA candidates at Cornell how to go out and acquire businesses. And so, uh, but all of this started really back in 2015. I was like 25 and I was broke and I was asking myself, how do I get rich? And so I started reading every book I possibly could on a subject of wealth building. I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I read I Will Teach You to Be Rich by Ramit Sethi. Um, those two books convinced me that if I was going to become wealthy, I needed to get into entrepreneurship. So the two big books in entrepreneurship for me that were um, pointed were uh, The E-Myth and Built to Sell. <laughs> so those are like my two like were my two Bibles as I was uh, understanding um, the world of entrepreneurship, et cetera. And so- Okay, that's, that's very generous, but I won't understand <laughs> what happened between being broken 25 yeah. and buying two $30 million companies. That's <laughs> in the space of eight years. There's, some, yeah. there's a, a bit of a gap there I need to fill in. <laughs> yeah, so what I learned in 2015 was that uh, that MBA candidates at Harvard and at Stanford were being taught by their professors how uh, that that their a correct approach to entrepreneurship or that a correct approach to entrepreneurship was to skip the startup phase and to just look for an existing business that had done all of the things that you advocate that um, uh, that entrepreneurs do and built to sell that they do that a business that has already done those things and instead of going and chronic create all that stuff on your own as a newly minted MBA, just to go out and buy that company. And that there are um, capital sources that are available for 25, 26, 27, 28 year olds. Really, it's not it's not dependent on your age, but that just exposing them to someone who's mature enough to understand how a business can operate, has already made a decision to go and study business at a prestigious business school, um, to go and do that work and, uh, and find a company for sale. And so, this was being taught really only at two schools. It was at Harvard Business School and it was being taught at Stanford Business School. Now, me, I was a broke 25-year-old um, and come to find out, they had just recently made it uh, 
exported this class to Columbia Business School. And I lived in New York City at the time, or I live in New York City still. um, And I lived maybe five minutes away from Columbia Business School. And so I just went to the business school and I sat in the course where they were teaching the MBAs in New York how to buy companies. You weren't registered? (laughs) I wasn't registered. I was not a student. I just sat in the class. (laughs) Who's the uh, new kid? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. No one. In fact, it was the first day of class. Like I went on the internet, found out when classes start. I sat in the class, and that was what my that was my introduction to how to do this in a formulaic academic place where I could ask the professor questions and interrogate other people who had done this successfully. The whole nine, and I just sat in the class, and that's how I how I learned. Did you ever get caught? Oh yes. (laughs) In fact, I got caught. And this, um, the, the, the professor was so impressed by the fact that I had made that decision that he started inviting me back to teach uh, and lecture in his course about uh, hustle and drive and motivation and, you know, stick-to-itiveness and all this stuff and stuff to convince the MBAs who are in that um, class about, you know, separate from the academic side of this thing, there is a, a meaningful amount of, like, just going after it. Like you got to go and get it done. And, uh, and the idea that somebody would learn about this and say, Hey, I'm just going to go to the business school. Like who <laughs> the business school's doors are not closed. <laughs> you, know, like, you just go there. I was about the same age as any other MBA. I didn't stand out in some <laughs> unusual way, but I sat down in the class and I learned how to buy companies. And that was the um, introduction to, to my, uh, to my, so a lot of like pre-learning through books like yours and others and, uh, and then actual academic training in the business school. And then I went out and uh, started executing, um, and searching for companies to buy. And now years later, I'm the guy who actually has the students <laughs> and teaches them how to, how to do it as well. And so you're actually now a, a, a professor. Uh, so what my, my, yeah. my, my title would be more accurately a visiting lecturer. So I have a class inside of a larger course um, that's taught at Columbia, I mean, at Cornell Business, Cornell's Business School. Um, and in that class, I teach the MBAs how to buy companies. And what do you teach them? So the first thing I think MBAs and just really Really, anybody who doesn't come from wealth, like I'm not a, I don't come from any, <laughs> I don't come from any wealth. Uh, uh, in a previous podcast, I was talking to somebody and I had a friend who uh, had, was doing this type of work. And I think at the time, he probably had a net worth of around $5,000. And he was probably the richest person I knew at that time. <laughs> like, 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 we, we didn't have no money. And so, uh, and so I think it's such, it's such a frame break and such a, dramatic thing to tell somebody who does not have a lot of money, um, really any major significant net worth, that instead of starting a business, which most people will tell you, you should start a business if you want to become wealthy, that you should just skip that and buy it. Because the first question is, where do I get the money? <laughs> how, how am I supposed to afford buying a company? And in fact, that's how I start my course. As I say, uh, I start my class and I say, entrepreneurship acquisition, you should buy a company. What's the first thing you think about? And then the MBAs all pop up and they all say the same question. How am I supposed to afford that? I have business school loans. Like, where does this money come from? (laughs) And and that's, you know, you're talking about buying a company. And so I think ultimately getting the MBAs to recognize that there is an enormous amount, not, and, and by enormous amount, it's like, it's hard to overstate the amount of money that exists in the world that is that is specifically focused on finding great businesses, many companies that are similar to the types of businesses that your audience um, have created already, particularly if they followed the blueprint that you wrote about in your book. If they, if they do exactly the steps that you listen to your book, there is a so much capital that exists in the world specifically designed to acquire those businesses and keep them operating and running for the future and, uh, okay. and, and ultimately sold again. So let's get practical. So I, I want to, you're, I'm one of your students. I'm at, I'm at Cornell. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're teaching me where to find the money. So mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't have, I don't have, I don't have whatever it costs to buy a $30 million company. I don't have anywhere sure. close to that. So give me what, how do I, how do I raise the money to do this? Right. So the first thing I like to do is I try to frame the type of company that I think that is most appropriate for an MBA to, uh, to acquire. Um, the first step I think is that, there are size limits that 
the market has made possible for people of our um, backgrounds to, to, to attract and to um, execute against. The first I would say is that there's a minimum revenue amount of at least a million dollars. You can find a company that generates at least a million dollars in revenue. That's the beginning. But I would say as a high point, you probably don't want to go over $10 million. That said, I bought two companies that have three times that amount. My situation ended up being a little more unique. Um, that said, I have friends and friends and friends and a large community of people who have done this exact approach that I'm about to outline um, here, which is one to $10 million in revenue. That's about the size that you want to focus on. This means it's a company that's not a startup. They haven't just gotten into business. Um, but it's also not so large that Coca-Cola is the main appropriate acquirer, right? <laughs> You're not getting calls from, that company's not getting calls from Apple and Google. Instead, they're getting calls from people like me who can put together the capital financing to complete a transaction of that size. The second thing would be, uh, uh, would be a minimum EBITDA amount. And by EBITDA, I mean annual profits or your earnings before interest, depreciation, taxes, and amortization. Now, this number, um, is sort of seen as the holy grail in the private equity space, in the M&A space, um, that if that number is at least a million dollars, you're now in a space where you can attract uh, capital, both from individuals and from larger institutions, um, like private equity firms, um, like family offices, more traditional um, wealthy people, right? The second thing that you also have access to is you have access to a certain set of banks that are willing to finance these transactions. About, about 70% of the acquisition is gonna probably come from a lender. Um, the, the, the big thing that I introduce to the, 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 the students that I speak to is this is a leveraged buyout in this old classical sense, the 1980s style. Um, this is where we're going to use a decent amount of, of debt financing to complete these transactions. And so, the, the lenders make up the majority of that um, that 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 conversation. And so um, there are lenders like Live Oak Bank and Byline Bank and many others uh, that uh, focus exclusively on giving or not exclusively, but have a have departments that are dedicated to making these types of transactions happen because they have a guarantee coming from the government. So um, it's funny, I, I, I was in Cape Town, South Africa last month or actually two months ago and talking to a bunch of private equity professionals out there. And I was explaining to them exactly what I'm explaining to you. And it blew their minds because outside the United States, what I'm about to explain is considered like crazy. But the federal government gives a guarantee through a program called the 7A program, which guarantees that a bank, a uh, uh, their loan, it completely guarantees it. So if we buy a company using money from the bank, and we go bust, the government will repay that loan completely to the bank, which makes that makes the loan essentially for the bank no risk. Now, of course, they need to do due diligence and all that to make sure that the government sees that they actually uh, you know, reviewed this business. But for the most part, it's a, a risk-free loan that the bank can give out um, to people who want to go buy companies. And that loan can go up to 90% LTV or loan to value. So you can get 90% of a proposed transaction from from the bank. So we're talking a company, let's say using the example I just gave, let's say that we go, we attract a business that's making $4 million in annual profits and a million dollars of, excuse me, $4 million in revenue and a million dollars of annual profits. Generally speaking, those businesses trade for around three to five times their annual profits. So let's say we buy that company for $4 million or we've agreed with the seller he owns a business that's a million that generates a million dollars annually in profit. He'll sell the company for four million dollars. We go to the bank. We can borrow up to ninety percent of the purchase price directly from the bank. So now we have to come up with ten percent of four million dollars, which is four hundred thousand dollars. Now four hundred thousand dollars is a lot of money, but it's a lot different than going coming up with <laughs> coming up with four million dollars. And what are we talking about from a risk? position. We're, we're trying to track certain types of companies, you know, businesses that have been stable for years that have a lot of the criteria that you outlined in your book, John, which are, you know, no major customer concentration. We're not trying to buy a company that has one customer that represents everybody or that has a key man risk where like the all the customers come directly from <laughs> the relationship that the seller has with them. And so 
we try to find a good business that can operate exclusive uh, from the owner. And that puts us in a position where we can buy that company, um, borrow some of the money from, from the bank. And let's let's assume for a sentence that we don't borrow any money from the bank. We just straight up buy the company for $4 million. For some reason, I'm talking to some super duper wealthy person who just has $4 million in the bank. They buy the company for $4 million. They just put that up. Uh, if they if they com- business continues operating just as it's been operating for the, for the future, and meaning it continues to generate at least a million dollars annual in annual profits, they get 25% of the money that they've invested into that company back every single year. So within four years, they get all of their money back for operating that company, assuming nothing else has changed. That's a 25% you're, return. You're referring to the tw- yeah, you're referring to the million dollars in profit. Exactly. That's a 25% return. Where can you get a 25% return right now in the market? Nowhere. (laughs) The stock market is 8%, right? And so Mm -hmm. that's, so when you add in leverage, you're only amplifying that because you're reducing the amount of money that you're bringing in to $400,000. Now that's your, that's your capital base. You're putting in $400,000 for a business that generates a million dollars. Now let's let's talk about the loan. You have a four million, you have a three three point six million dollar loan, right? Yep. So you yep. take that three point six million dollar loan. You, let's let's put a ten percent rate on it. So ten percent of that is what you're paying to the to the bank every single year. So you take three hundred sixty thousand dollars and subtract that or subtract that out of the million dollars that you're making in annual profits. So you put up four hundred thousand dollars, <laughs> and that's how much money that you have left. One million minus three hundred and sixty thousand dollars. So now you've gotten mm-hmm. all of the equity back that you invested in this company in one year, and you have, and still you have an existing asset that's generating money year after year after year after year. That simple explanation, when you put that in front of just an average investor, a person who has something like a hundred thousand dollars, two hundred thousand dollars, and the combination of their four hundred one k, their savings account, etc. When you explain that simple thing, that's not a difficult thing to explain to them why you should give me 40 grand so that I can buy this company, particularly if you know the person. And then there are professional investors. And that's where my $30 million deal happened, et cetera. Family offices, large professional, uh, large professional private equity firms that will partner with an investor like me and say, hey, we understand exactly what you just said. Here's the money to com- um, complete that transaction. And so that's really the opportunity that's been this the uh, uh, been explained both and operated and been successful for uh, almost a decade now. Okay. So I understand the the very kind of simplistic example, the $4 million company, the SBA, Small Business Administration Loans, called the 7A in mm-hmm. the United States, is coming in with $3.6 million of that or 90%. That sounds high to me. Uh, is, is that common that the SBA would go all the way to 90%? Under what conditions so- would it go all the way to 90%? So what I would say is what's more common as a number is to look at the EBITDA number and multiply it by 2.5 times. And Got that's it. roughly what you'll get from, from a bank um, standard. But then there are, then there are lenders who do what, do what, uh, what, what we do. They partner with entrepreneurs who are looking to buy companies in this manner and they consistently do somewhere between 80 and 90% of the financing. And so that's why I mentioned groups like Live Oak Bank, Byline Bank, and others. And you can find that. So there's a there's a resource. Um, and now, now I feel like I'm, I'm running the risk of uh, convincing your, uh, <laughs> your audience to say, hey, let me go buy a company. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah but, you're uh, creating some competition. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so there's a resource called searchfunder.com. And it's a community of people who are just like me who go out and buy companies. Um, and the lenders, the investors, people who do who help on due diligence, people who help on all parts of this uh, this acquisition process in the lower middle market, which is what we define businesses that generally make less than fifty million dollars in in revenue. Um, we refer to that as the lower middle market as opposed to the middle market, which is much 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 higher than that. Um, there's an entire community of service providers, investors, lenders, um, and entrepreneurs, and we call them entrepreneurship, entrepreneurs through acquisition, who are active in this space, um, who, who share their experiences, their tips, their, um, uh, and their support for people who are looking to buy companies. 
Got it. So let's go back to this $4 million business as an example. So what would be common for an SBA loan like a like from a Live Oak or Byline or two of the leading SBA lenders in the United States, they would say, okay, we'll do two and a half times EBITDA. So in this case, it'd be 2.5 million. Where's the other million and a half coming from? Almost none of them are completed without some form of seller financing, meaning the seller himself will provide a loan for um, the business to be acquired. And so let's assume a $4 million transaction, $2.5 million you get from the bank. You ask the seller, you would ask for, let's say somewhere in the area of a million dollars. Maybe the, maybe the seller says no to a million dollars, but let's say it's somewhere in the area of half a million dollars to a million dollars. That's where you get that. And that leaves the $500,000 as the final piece of equity that you need to, um, to bring into the transaction. And that ultimately you'd break up against maybe 10, investors who you ask each for $50,000. And so these are people you've worked with, people who you are in the community, people who know you and trust you, and that's where you pull in that capital. Or you do what I've done, which is to go out to larger capital sources, like family offices and private equity firms to complete those sides, to, to okay. pull in that large size. I get this totally. We've got a couple more questions. So we got a $4 million business, two and a half from an SBA loan. A million five left to finance. Of that, let's say a million from the seller, five hundred k. You got to raise, so you you break it out into ten equal pay, and ten tranches of fifty k. Ten different investors. Right. The ten, the fifty k. What's in it for them? Like, do they get equity in the deal? Or mm -hmm. Are they like a limited partner? Like, so, like, what's the legal structure there? Yeah. So so. When I'm talking to guys who reach out to me about this sort of approach and I ask them, who are they thinking about talking to that $50,000 from? Are they talking to the super sophisticated investor who uh, wants to know about their IRRs and their MOIC um, and what's the weighted <laughs> average return? And, you know, they're, they're asking all of those types of sophisticated questions, then, um, there are certain things that you need to be able to hit for that investment, right? First, you need to be able to hit is at least an 8% annual return because the, the, the bar there, you, any sophisticated investor is going to look at is the S&P 500's return on capital. That's a, that's a quote unquote, at least close to non-risky return. So they're going to look at the S&P 500 and say, can you at least return 8% of my money over the course of X period? But no investor is going to say, well, because you gave me 9%, I'm going to be willing to do this deal because they're going to say that an S&P gives me 8 Wow, <laughs> that 1% premium doesn't matter to me at all. And so in the private equity world, we generally look at something in the area of 30% for these sort of uh, transactions. You need to be able to 30. return all of their capital plus 30%. And so whatever sort of structure that you use to be able to, um, to provide that return, either you return most of their capital in the first year, which is what I described in the, the first example by amping up the leverage and bringing down the amount of equity that you needed. You, um, because there's so much capital still available, you can amplify, amplify that return by returning that capital early. And so you can do trade-offs with the equity amount or uh, uh, an increase, a quicker return um, that reduces. But ultimately that's sort of like the working within the confines of, um, of a sophisticated investor's understanding of how capital should be returned to them for participating in your transaction. And I frankly think that more people should uh, want to have those types of investors in their, um, in their business because they will bring, just by the nature of who they are, a rigor that will force you as an entrepreneur who owns that company to be very intelligent in how you manage that business because you know you're going to have somebody who's holding you accountable to what you put into that language. But that Got said, that's good. More often than not, who are you going to actually go to that money, right? If you are in your late 40s, early 50s, you've been running a company for 20 years, you know people in your personal community who are friends with you, who have built a significant net worth. You know family members who are also have that net worth. You may have a father-in-law, mother-in-law who also has that sort of net worth who can afford to give you $50,000 and not be so sophisticated on the numbers. That said, you got to go to church with that person on Sunday 
<laughs> you know, you got to show up to Thanksgiving. You got to see that person in the community. You know, this is who you're borrowing that money from. And they don't see it as they invested in that capital. They see it truly as you asked me for some money so that I can buy, so you can buy a company. And now <laughs> I loaned you that money. Even if they are truly an equity investor in your business, they're not going to see it that way. They're going to see it as I am a part of the loan structure of your business. And if you are not being ethical in the way that you are providing, returning that capital back, if you are going through bumps and hiccups, and, and actually it doesn't even need to be unethical. It could just be you bought a good company, but it has problems that are resulting in it just being a little bit more difficult for you to justify returning capital at this particular point in time. Maybe you plan to in 18 months, but it's just not, it's just not practical for you to do that now. But these people who you've raised capital from, they don't understand that when they're sitting across from you at the dinner table. <laughs> what they understand is, hey, John gave John, John asked me for $30,000 and he has not given me that money back. And it's been two years. Where am I getting that money back? And that's all they're going to hear. They don't care about the weighted cost of return. Da, da, da. And even if you give them their money plus a return in the future, they, you still might have some difficulties. And so that's the sort of, I think more often than not, when you're going after businesses of this size and this sort of thing, that's the type of people who you're going to likely interact with as you're raising capital, particularly if you're of the type, if the type of person who I just described, somebody in their late 40s, early 50s, who has access to that sort of network. If you're my age, when I was, as I mentioned, when I was um, coming at this thing at, tw at 25, I didn't know anybody who had real capital. Everybody I knew had a couple thousand dollars. We were all hustling, trying to, you know, make it happen for ourselves at that age. And so for those at that time, I needed to pursue more, um, higher, uh, higher investors who had a much more, um, rigorous understanding of what they were looking for, um, uh, from, from a return profile. Which is where we get into $30 million type deals, more specifically exactly required. Right. I want to stick with the smaller deal right now because this is interesting and again, probably very important for our listeners to hear. So, uh, so you go to friends and family, you're asking for 50, $50,000. And, and did I hear you right in saying a, a kind of a, a, a hurdle rate might be a 33, 0% return in, in a year, 18 months kind of thing? Like, is, is there a so, time frame that you think so, is, is there? Yeah. So the internal rate of return, which is a combination of time and, uh, and money, if you start returning capital in year one and year two, your internal rate of return is going to be far higher than 30%. And so, if that's your plan, you don't even need to think about internal rate of return. Like you've, you're, you've already solved the problem. Most of us, when we're talking about that IRR number and by internal rate of return, that's what I mean by IRR. That's usually over the course of five years. So at the end of a, at the, at the end of a five year period, you return all of their capital plus a 30% premium. What I would say is, again, that's for the sophisticated investor who, um, who, who recognizes that's the type of return that they, um, that they want. If you're, if you're planning to make try to return capital in the first year, you don't worry too much about about that. At that point, you might just be it might just be more practical sense when you're talking to investors to talk about the raw numbers. I'm, you're going to give me fifty thousand dollars. I'm going to give you fifty. I'm going to give you sixty thousand dollars back in one year. Right? You're going to get ten. Per, you're going to get ten grand on your fifty thousand dollars in the first year. I just want to understand. You mentioned that this is debt and you drew the distinction that like friends around the Thanksgiving table aren't probably going to be super sophisticated and won't really understand the difference between debt and equity. They're going to say, I gave you 50 grand. I want my 60 back. <laughs> and, and I get that, but I'd be curious to know the structure, like when it's papered in, in a legal document, is it, mm -hmm. is it debt or so, is it a convertible so, note or is it equity? So like what there are some close to standard things. Which is first, the, the the person in the company will more often be referred to as an LP, so that the, the so they will be a true owner of, of of equity in the business. A limited partner. A limited partner. So the LP will be a preferred equity owner in the business. Meaning, more often than not, me when I'm putting together this transaction will live in the common equity of the business, and I'll have certain rights that come along with that common equity ownership of the business. But the preferred equity of the business will have a certain level of rights that include if that when money is distributed, it first has to return capital to that preferred stack before it makes it to the common. 
So if I make a distribution of $100,000 out of my business, but I have a preferred ownership stake that represents $120,000 and they, that money needs to be um, paid out before it makes it breaks out to the common ownership of the business. And so it acts similar to debt. It's not going to be, it's, it's not above the, the senior debt. If we're, if we're using a funnel, senior debts up here, first money out has to go to the senior debt. Next money would be the seller note. Third money would be the preferred equity. And then the last money would be the common equity. And your, uh, your, your investors would be partial owners of both per, will be full owners of the preferred equity tranche, but the bottom, they'll partner, um, together with you in that tranche. So they'll first, you have to satisfy the preferred equity amount that you guaranteed. Hey, you gave me $50,000. I'm going to give you $60,000 back. You have to guarantee, you have to uh, fulfill that. And then once you fulfill that, then you as an owner in the common, along with the, will participate, um, on a, uh, pro rata share of what that amount is. And so let's say you've negotiated a deal where they get their 60, $60,000 out in the first year. And then down here in the common, they're 20% of the owners and you're 80% of the owner. So after they get their money back, now going forward, it's 80, 20, 80, 20, 80, 20. Got it. That's super helpful. Did I hear you say the seller's note would sit right above? Below? Yeah, it would sit above the preferred, but it would not be above the, the, the senior debt. And the, and, the, and the senior debt would make it absolutely clear <laughs> to the, <laughs> to yeah. the seller that the, that, that number so will stay there. Yeah. So, so folks know the term senior debt, like the bank that's, right. that's, that's, that's lending the, the two and a half million dollars in this fictitious example that we're describing here that's would right. sit first. And then the, the owner who put up the million bucks would sit second and then the preferred shareholders and then the common shareholders. That's and effectively to, the structure. And to really explain, uh, to, to, to further emphasize that point that I made about the, you know, sitting around the dinner table conversation, the senior, the senior lender, the, the bank, has the ability, um, as a result of its loan contract, to turn off payments to the seller, to turn off payments to the preferred, and to prevent the common from receiving any distributions. And so this is sort of what I mean by when you're sitting down at the dinner table and, this, and your friend is asking you for that, you know, when am I going to get that 60000 And you say, well, this, the senior note has a contract that says that I'm not able to make any distributions. These are the types of things that they will not understand or care about. You own the company. Why can't you give me money? <laughs> yeah. That's the yeah. situation. Those are the types of situations that can uh, become sticky. Yeah, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. um, couple questions. Who guarantees the SBA loan? So oh, that's, that's actually a very good question. I know the government backstops the SBA loan, which enables That's right. folks like Wells Fargo and Live Oak to do what they do. That's right. But there's also someone else who guarantees the two and a half million, correct? That's right. That's right. Uh, you, the um, potential acquirer of that company, will fully guarantee that loan up to the full amount of your assets. And so, um, so that is a consideration that anyone considering uh, pursuing an SBA loan should be aware of is that that loan is uh, fully guaranteed, uh, fully secured by all of your assets. Um, the second piece about that is that the, the obvious next question would be, so what about the investors who you're asking to participate in that transaction? And they, to some degree, can be sheltered from that guarantee by keeping their ownership stake below a certain threshold. And that threshold is 20% ownership of the company, which is why I mentioned in the comment that they would rep that that split would be 80 per 80, 20. Um, so that's where the, the LPs. Now you can have as many LPs as you want in that um, common bucket. Um, as long as they stay below 20%, they will never um, trigger the, the necessity for a guarantee. So that's really important for our listeners to, to understand as well, uh, in particular those in the United States where this would be would be relevant. But most countries have you know, there are different programs. I'd, I'd encourage folks outside of the United States to, to look into uh, how acquisition entrepreneurship is being executed in your country. Uh, obviously, the U.S. is probably the most mature in this in this space, but there are others. Um, so the, the two and a half million dollars in the senior debt is guaranteed by the acquisition entrepreneur. Mm. 
My understanding as well is that if the seller rolls more than 20% of his or her equity, that they too would be asked to guarantee the $2.5 million senior note. Is that your understanding as well? So um, up until very recently, sellers were unable to own equity in the company after uh, if they agreed to sell the company. They were allowed to have a seller note, but they were not allowed to have any equity in the business um, as a as a uh, requirement to participate in this, an SBA loan. Recently, and I think as that's as recent as this year, that yeah, I think it's um, like a month ago or something that, like that. Right, yeah. that's changed. Um, that said, the majority of my experience with the SBA has been under the concept of they're not being allowed to use um, seller equity, and so. I wouldn't be able to answer the question as to the nuances of that um, that change. Okay. Yeah, I think I think um, what my understanding of the rule, and again, I, it may change. It may have. I think it changed about a month ago. But my understanding is, if you, as the seller of the business, roll more than twenty percent of your equity to, mm-hmm. to somebody who into a new entity that you're that you've agreed to acquire, you uh, you could be effectively have to personally guarantee the debt that the senior lender is mm. is taking on to underwrite the transaction. So that's something you should be really well aware of if that's, that's right. in fact what you plan to do. Um, but now we're getting into stuff that's way beyond <laughs> my pay, pay grade. So I just encourage everyone to kind of uh, talk to a professional when it comes to that. But no, suffice one, to say- One last thing. Go ahead. One last thing. And, yeah. I, and I appreciate that we're having a lot of conversation about the leverage piece of this yeah. um, because uh, uh, leverage is a, a very- important and interesting tool. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. and, it's the name uh, leverage buyout. <laughs> exactly right. And uh, I think a lot of times when we talk about this world of acquisitions and all this, we leave out the um, the conversation on our leverage, even though that takes up the majority of the capital approach. It's the biggest part of the conversation, da, da, da. And so it's, it's funny that, you know, more most people, when they talk about this, they focus so much on the um, equity and raising that, um, the, um, raising the investor money. Um, but understanding the debt markets is really important. That said, um, the SBA is but one of the lenders in the lower or one program in the lower middle market um, that has certain criteria. But there are other lenders who operate in this world that don't have the same um, requirements that the SBA has. And because they operate in this world, they have other trade-offs that um, that you'll have to be aware and consider. Um, uh, but you don't. But just because there is a guarantee requirement, and you may find that to be um, offensive and be unwilling to uh, participate, that does not mean that there uh, there's no other debt access in this um, in this market. In fact, the first time that I ever received a uh, a uh, commitment letter from a bank. Was not from a, a lender who had a uh, who had a, an SBA guarantee connected to it, and so um, there are options for loans um, in this space that don't have that option as well. I want to get to that because uh, I want to go to the larger size deal because it, it falls sort of outside of the scope of what we've talked about. But the, the, just to kind of put a pin in this this four million dollar deal, which again is is very uh, much in the kind of wheelhouse of a lot of our listeners. Um, you as the acquisition entrepreneur, the 25-year-old MBA who's putting this whole kind of thing together, you are personally guaranteeing everything. And at least if you use it, as least if you use the SBA loan. Yeah. The SBA loan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, as a 25-year-old MBA, like who cares? Who you cares? got nothing. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you're you're That's like exactly it's not right. a big deal. If you're a 55-year-old entrepreneur and you happen to like the idea of acquiring, you know, and you built some net worth, you may want to think about that uh, and also, personal obligation you're taking on. And that's why I want to emphasize that there are, and, protect, and, and here's another piece, is that oftentimes when I went to look for a loan for a company that I was looking to buy, um, I just went to the lender that was already familiar with the business. And so if you have a lender who you already work with, who provides you with working capital lines of credit, et cetera, um, they have a program inside of their bank more often than not to provide you with a, a loan to go out and acquire another company. And if they and if that exists, then 
they may also be willing to sidestep the SBA program. You do not have to, a bank does not have to use the SBA program to provide a loan. It's, yeah. it's completely optional on their part. Um, and if you are a, uh, a customer of choice, a consistent payer of your bills, a consistent, there's very, there are many banks that would be willing. In fact, banks are in the business of lending money. <laughs> so they'd be very yeah. willing to participate and work with you it's, if, um, because, if that's a good. Corey, it's so funny because I've literally, literally just launched an episode or released an episode last week, I think by the time this one uh, goes live, where an entrepreneur built a wonderful business, uh, seven, eight million top line, $3 million of EBITDA. And she leveraged the entire thing up and borrowed mezzanine debt at mm. 13 or 14%. I can't remember the exact. She pledged the entire business she created, this business with $3 million of EBITDA to guarantee the debt, the mez debt, and wrote a personal guarantee. <laughs> and I pushed her on it because to me that, that sounded almost foolhardy. Like it sounded right. so risky because mm -hmm. again, she built this company that had value. In this case, it, mm -hmm. you know, even if you take five times 3 million of EBITDA, it's a $15 million business. She's putting, you know, chips on the table. That's right. Plus a personal guarantee, everything she's got in the world to, to go. It, I don't have the stomach for it. Me either. <laughs> I, you, I mean, like you've that's done it. this. So like, well, how that's did you it. get comfortable with that idea? So that's it. So, this story of uh, people levering up and taking everything to the tilt has been told to me before, and including, yeah. you know, the mo probably the most prestigious example of this is Elon Musk, right? He, that was the story of uh, SpaceX and Tesla. Um, uh, that said, I was willing to make that 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 decision uh, when I was twenty five, and uh, and in fact, the biggest heartbreak of my life was getting enormously close to completing a transaction. In fact, the one that I mentioned before where um, I had um, the commitment letter from a bank. Um, this one did not have the SBA loan um, portion to it, but the bank itself was absolutely forcing me to guarantee the loan. There was no, <laughs> no question of that. So yes, I was guaranteeing that loan. For me, the calculus was the same, which is that at that point I was about 28, 29, and, uh, and uh, I wanted to own a company and this was a great business that, um, that I found and pursued and it found a great multiple and found a lot of parts about the company that give me, gave me a great sense that it was defensible. Um, and for me as an acquirer, and this now gets into my personal preference is I like businesses that are defensible where, uh, it, that COVID itself couldn't shake this business. And so, um, for instance, the company that I'm talking about was a, or is a label paper manufacturer. So basically when you go to the supermarket to get like a sandwich or a soup from the fresh prepared food section, um, you know, they, they'll put it on the scale, they'll print out a label, they'll lay, you take the label to the cashier to pay for it. This company provides supermarkets with the, um, with the printers and then provides label paper to them on an ongoing basis. So here's a business that sits so small in the P&L chart of any supermarket um, uh, uh, owner that if he's looking to make cuts, he's not looking at label paper for his, <laughs> for his printer. That's not the, that's not the place for the cuts. You know, yeah. he, he's going to be pretty good there. And so had around 700 different accounts, um, providing label paper, the small little line item on the company. Um, company was generating something at the point, $1.5 million in EBITDA and negotiated a price of around four to five times for the business. Got the bank to loan me the money um, to, to buy the company. Uh, and as I mentioned, this is the biggest heartbreak of my life that the seller at the very last minute pulled out of the transaction and ultimately sold the company to its competitor. And, and since then, that company has been traded at twice. And I was working on that transaction just before COVID. And this is what I mean by COVID in, uh, uh, invincible. When the next year in 2020, every other business in the world shut down except for supermarkets. <laughs> so, and the labels, all, just keep, and the labels keep getting printed. <laughs> you know, so nice, stable, so, steady business. How did that, that deal fall apart? You mentioned the, the, an acquirer approached them. I'm assuming the acquirer had better so, terms or was going to so, pay them more. Yeah, so, so ultimately, the, 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 the struggle on that transaction 
um, came down to an, a, a Kawhi asking, offering a higher purchase price. Um, now, generally speaking, the, the solution to this problem is to have a letter of intent that's ironclad. Um, what I had decided to do in the middle of this transaction um, was to pause the letter of intent because I was working on something with the bank. And, uh, and ultimately, uh, that was the worst decision <laughs> that I ever made in my life. So let me talk about letter of intent. A letter of intent is the uh, legal document that defines the deal between me and the person who owns the company. Um, and we call that colloquially an LOI. Um, the letter of intent, the most important clause in a letter of intent is the exclusivity period clause, which allows you, generally speaking, about 90 days as the buyer to work on that transaction. And um, during due diligence, we found so many different unique issues with this company. It was a great business, but there were so many different unique issues with the business um, that it required me to um, to work out some specific things to solve um, with the with the lender. And so during that time period, I told the seller, "Listen, you know, I don't want to be um, offensive to you and force you to." Um, stay off market while I work out these issues with uh, with the lender, what which was the lender that I wanted to work on in the transaction. I'll allow you to um, I'll remove the exclusivity period, um, but I'll be back and I'll be back to you within two weeks. And during that two weeks, the, <laughs> the seller, in his uh, concern that I may not come back, um, reached out to the competitor and uh, they offered more money than I was willing to pay. When you sign a letter of intent, how formal is your how how what level of confidence do you have that you've got a bank that's willing to do the deal so i will not sign the letter of intent with a uh with a business owner who uh who i where i have structured a deal that i know is not financeable and i've been in this game since 2015 i know what financeable deals look like and i know what non-financeable deals look like um uh there are oftentimes unique nuances that a specific business may have um, that can change the, uh, and these are things that I won't know ahead of uh, letter of intent because these things require <coughs> deep due diligence into, into companies. Um, and, uh, and so while going through diligence, there may be things that pop up, um, but generally speaking, I'm never gonna sign a letter of intent with somebody who um, I'm working on a transaction that is not financeable. An example of a not financeable deal would be, um, let's say I'm talking to the owner of a company who has a million dollar EBITDA, uh, and we're talking about him selling the company to me for $10 million. That on its face, unless it's a very fast growing technology company um, uh, with an enormous amount of monthly recurring revenue, um, more often than not, it would not, would not be financeable. I wouldn't sign that deal with the owner of a landscaping um, and snow removal company. Um, more often than not, I would uh, sign that deal um, with a four or five X uh, multiple on that. So that means a purchase price is somewhere in the four or five million dollar range on a million dollars in EBITDA, um, not 10 million. And if I did sign that, I would, if, if somebody did sign a $10 million um, number on a uh, $1 million EBITDA, you would know that uh, they probably would not be able to finance that deal. Yeah, yeah. And for my my listeners' benefit, know that almost always a letter of intent, or what Bakari is referring to as an LOI, is non-binding, meaning either party can usually cancel the agreement without uh, any sort of form of recourse from the other side. There That's are right. examples where there is breakup clauses and so forth, but in most cases in the slower mid-market, LOIs can be canceled effectively without either side having to owe one another anything. And so this right. was within your rights to to break this LOI because you weren't able to get financing. But from, a, from our listener's perspective, if you're going to agree to an LOI, you're going to want to make sure that whoever you're doing the transaction with, you feel confident they can raise the money they are they they say they can. Uh, right. Obviously that's going to be an important piece of Particular, your diligence as the seller. At the same side, oftentimes when when sellers are working on transactions, um, they know parts of their business that we as acquirers may not know. And there are businesses, as I mentioned, this business was a great company, but there are things that will pop up in due diligence that I that can change the whole nature of how we think about um, our ability to finance a transaction and can spook a, spook a bank and spook other investors. Um, and so that should be, you should be also aware that you can 
extend your due diligence period and extend the time of completing that transaction when you have these types of things pop up that you haven't disclosed before the seller or before the buyer starts working on trying to buy your company. Yeah. You don't want any skeletons in the closet being, right. being kind of discovered <laughs> during due diligence for lots of reasons. Just walk me through very briefly the $30 million type of transaction you referred to. So much larger. How mm -hmm. is a $30 million deal that you would do different than say a $4 million deal? Sure. So um, more often than not, what I'm going to, what I'm going to have to do on a transaction that side is it's too large for me to do what I just mentioned, which is, you know, go out to different people and ask them for uh, $700,000 each. <laughs> 10 people will give you $700,000. We can, we can rule the world. Um, uh, so in that case, I need to reach out to professional organizations that provide capital for, uh, for, for acquisition. So, um, the, uh, the company that I acquired NYP Corp, um, uh, which is a burlap bag manufacturing company. Um, I reached out to a, uh, what's called a small business investment corporation, um, that had around four, that has around $400 million of, um, assets in the management, meaning they raised $400 million for the purpose of acquiring companies, likely in partnership with folks like me who have done the work of sourcing and negotiating a great deal with a um, with a motivated seller um, has um, up, has defined an, uh, a, a growth plan for the company. So it's not just, you know, brokering the deal, but also managing and operating that company alongside um, the the day-to-day the, the -day managers of the company. So that's what I do as uh, as what's called an independent sponsor, um, where I go up, where I, on a daily a weekly basis interacting with the management of the company um, to execute the growth plan um, that I introduced to the um, private equity firm, um, the small business investment corporation that I partnered with to complete the transaction. And so um, on that deal, I uh, put together the financing from them. Um, I hired the CEO who operates and runs the company on a on a day-to-day -day basis, put together the growth plan, um, negotiated the deal with the um, with the sellers um, and then worked in partnership with the private equity firm to evaluate um, and complete the transaction. So how, how does that, to the extent that you can share, uh, how, how does it break down? So of the 30 million, uh, you know, what, what chunk was, was debt? What chunk was equity from the small business investment corp? Um, like, can you walk through any of the, the kind of details there, the proportions? So, so, so because, uh, NYP Corp is an operating business and operates within a competitive set. Um, it's going to be hard for me to talk very openly about okay. um, specifics as it relates to that company. What I can say is uh, certain SBIC, SBICs um, operate both as debt and equity providers. And so instead of having to raise both the equity from uh, both uh, equity from one source and separately raise um, debt from another source, you can go to one firm that can provide all of that capital. And so ah, the, the, the deal operates exclusively between you and that firm. Um, and then there are other firms that, um, uh, that, that operate very similarly where they'll provide the debt, but they'll only provide a portion of the equity and you have to raise your portion of equity separate from that. Um, okay. And so there are, there are different nuances in how the SBIC program works. It's similar though in to, uh, to the SBA world where um, where the SBA the SBIC they actually the, the way they are able to raise money is they raise um, let's say a hundred million dollars and then the S, the the small business investment corporation matches that money. I think it's actually two to one. I could be wrong, but I think it's like two to one. Um, and so a $100 million in, in just pure cash that was raised from the, um, from the private equity firm plus, um, $200 million. And that comes to $300 million. And so there's many, many firms. This goes back to what I said at the beginning. There are many firms that are sitting on this type of, um, capital and it needs to be deployed into small businesses. Okay. Uh, and I appreciate we can't talk specifically about the burlap bag deal. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe we can just talk generally on a larger deal where the SBIC is coming in. Mm -hmm. uh, they, you know, let, let's say it's a $30 million transaction. They might be good for both a, a tranche of debt and a tranche of equity. So yeah, uh, not, and, and not just a tranche in the sense of like a portion, um, they may be representing the entire, 
the entire equity check. Got it. Got mm. it. Okay. And then that debt, again, as the acquisition entrepreneur, would you guarantee personally the debt no. the SBIC is taking on? No. No. What's the recourse the SBIC has on that debt if it doesn't get paid? Uh, so they own. So in this case, they both own the equity and the debt on the business. And so they're, they're, they're recourses themselves. Got it. They were. Right. Yeah, I see. And so in that case, in a typical $30 million deal, is there any uh, seller financing involved? There can be. Um, and it can be substantial. It can be small. It can be, you know, at that point, this goes back to that, that, that point I made before, which is you know, all relationships are, you know, they, they, they shift and change based on the, um, based on the realities that are, are, are at play. Um, not only is there seller um, financing on the table, but this is where um, more often than not, you're actually going to see seller equity uh, on the table, where the seller is going to roll a portion of their um, uh, their their financing back into um, back into the company. And, okay. and in this case, they, there's a huge incentive to do that because as a seller, you're not participating with just like you know a acquisition entrepreneur who's going to sort of wing it and uh, and make it happen. You're participating. A, with the acquisition entrepreneur who understands sort of the growth story, but you're also backed by a huge capital um, source. And so if there are initiatives that need to happen, if there are, um, you know, there's just capital there that is, that is excited to um, help make the, um, the transaction as much of a success and a big portion because they not only own the, a portion of the equity, if not all the equity, they also own um, a decent amount of the debt. Got it. Got it. I've heard this independent sponsor label, and and we've today used this acquisition entrepreneur label. Are mm -hmm. they synonyms? No, um, not in the way that are not in the way that they are not in the way that they present themselves in real life. Um, I I like to think of myself as an acquisition entrepreneur. And I resist the label an independent sponsor, generally speaking. That said, uh, and, and to define this, who I would say, an acquisition entrepreneur is somebody who's interested in buying a company and running it full-time as CEO. And so they are only in the acquisitions game for the purpose of finding one company. And if they find another company to buy after they bought their first company, it's usually in service of the first company that they bought. They're looking to just build that um, company up. Um, that's the label that I've, I've found myself most associated with, um, because when I speak with the business owner, that's generally speaking what I'm, that's the story that I'm saying, which is I'm interested in buying your company because I want to run it full time. That was this, the, um, the story that I had with the burlap company. Um, I was coming in to take over, um, the, um, the ownership in that business. How it played out was that I decided, um, in partnership with the investment group, that because I had not run this type of organization before, a manufacturing business, that there were people who were in better position to actually operate that company. And we um, together sourced a, uh, a fantastic CEO um, who, who came from a similar industry, um, has an enormous amount of management experience, um, has been running the company enormously successful um, since then, um, and who I learned from on a, uh, on a daily basis as uh as I seek, you know, additional um, acquisitions in the future. What that means then is because I have an owner, a significant ownership stake in NYP Corp as a company I own, and I own other businesses. Um, and those businesses I've, I've acquired, um, as opposed to starting, um, that makes me, in practice, an independent sponsor. And an independent sponsor is somebody who has an enormous amount of M&A experience and private equity experience, but does not operate within a fund structure, and so. Uh, so they have not gone out and raised hundreds of millions of dollars, which makes them beholden to specific um, investment horizons that the investors who have provided, have given them that capital um, to hold um, have over that capital that they have. So uh, you raise $100 million, you have five years to both return that $100 million plus a return to those investors. And there are many uh, entrepreneurs who are interested in continuing to do acquisitions, um, but they don't want to be beholden to those specific timelines just for holding that capital. They're open to having that, having those timelines over them if they own the company and they have raised that money from people when they bought the company, but they don't want to be beholden to those in a year where like 
a year like this year, which has been very low in M&A transactions. So very few yeah. M&A transactions relative to the previous year have happened, but you're still beholden to um, that timeline and you're, um, you're judged on your performance relative to, um, to holding on to that capital for that time period. And so independent sponsors instead go out and look for companies to buy uh, in a very similar way as I do, which is what makes me in practice far more an independent sponsor um, than, uh, than I would like to be. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. You'd like to fall more in that acquisition entrepreneur right. label. Okay. That's actually a really interesting distinction. I, I, I did not coming into this call. I'd never made that distinction before I thought of them as synonyms, but clearly they're not. That's mm-hmm. super helpful for, for me. So you, you know, we did a, an interview maybe a month back with a guy named Steve Reardon, who, uh, leads a, a group called, um, Alpine cool. software group or ASG. That mm. would be a typical private equity group where they've got outside investors that have come in. They've got a specific investment mandate to buy software groups and they, they, they expect to have their capital returned in a certain uh, period of time. And Steve's right. job is to buy businesses with that capital. That's right. Your job. And then there's the independent sponsor who is independent of any one capital source who is flexible in terms of how he or she structures the deal, um, but does not intend to operate the business, isn't necessarily going to become the CEO. And then the acquisition entrepreneur is saying, no, no, I want to buy a business, run it, build it, you know, maybe buy another business. But that's the, uh, am I getting the kind of distinction between the three types of people relatively correct? That's absolutely right. Okay. That's super helpful. I'd have just... In some ways, the independent sponsor sounds like the more glamorous thing in the sense that it's, um, you know, you can sort of fly around and do different deals and have different companies, whereas the acquisition entrepreneur feels sort of heavy, like you're going to buy one business, own it forever. Why, why do you, why would you prefer to be known as an acquisition entrepreneur and not an independent sponsor? Uh, I still believe that the greatest wealth building activity you can be involved in is building a fantastic great one business. Um, it can have lots of different parts of it, but I think that one great business, and this has been demonstrated with how many, <laughs> just go through the Forbes list from number one all the way down, maybe excluding maybe maybe excluding uh, Warren Buffett, um, but just going straight down the list, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, those are just like the, yeah. those, those are just the big ones. You can go all the way down to numbers 100, 200, 300 on the list. Everyone has a fantastic core business um, that they built, um, uh, that they own a meaningful stake in, um, and that's what's uh, the significant portion of their wealth. That said, uh, I currently am on a world tour traveling to 12 countries for 12 months as a part of this program called Remote Year. Um, And I have businesses that uh, provide me with capital that allow me to um, cover my bills while I navigate things and live a great life and see the world and that a third. And it's, you know, it's luxurious and it's fun and I love it. Um, I, uh, I'm aware though, that, uh, that once we get back, <laughs> you know, the way to get this thing done where um, you build the type of legacy that I'm looking to build for myself is going to be to buy one great business. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to, to making that happen. And so um, even while I'm on this trip, I, I'm taking calls with, um, uh, with, inv- with investors. I'm having calls with entrepreneurs and pursuing transactions for the purposes of finding that one good business. And, uh, and I expect to do so. Um, so that's why. Well, you know, our, you know our, our listeners are fielding a ton of calls, like, I, you know, sometimes as many as one or two a week. And it's hard for them to cut the wheat from the shaft, understand, okay, is this a private equity group he's calling me? Is this an independent sponsor? If so, have they got the money lined up? Is this an acquisition entrepreneur? Does he or she have the money lined Like, There's a lot, of, uh, a lot of things for them to sort of deflect. And I think a lot of our listeners feel, um, putting words in their mouth, but a little bit on the defensive of saying like, what's real here? You know, like who, who can, and so it's super helpful. And I really appreciate your candor today just in sort of decoding some of the language as well as some of the structure, because I think it's it's helpful for folks to go in with their eyes wide open, especially around some mm-hmm. of this, like who's guaranteeing the debt and like all mm-hmm. that stuff is, is important for folks to know. Uh, so it's been super helpful. I, um, I'd be remiss in not asking, where can folks reach out to you if they want to 
thank you for your insight, maybe connect with you. Sure. Um, is LinkedIn the best spot or have you got a LinkedIn, website? Yeah. Yeah. LinkedIn's great. Um, LinkedIn.com slash IN slash Bakari Akil. Um, that's a, uh, uh, I'm sure my name will be on the on the thing. Yeah, we'll put it all we'll put it spelling and um, so forth at builtsell.com for folks in the show notes. Sure. And we'll put your link directly um to Bakari Akil's uh, LinkedIn profile. Is that the yeah. best place then, LinkedIn? So that's that's one of the good places. The second place would be my website, which is graveshallcap.com. Um if you go on Graves Hall Cap, what I, you'll see I speak very plainly, very with a lot of candor, just explaining exactly my process and what I'm looking to accomplish um, and tell you exactly who I am and how it gets done. And so um, that's exactly how I you know, try to interact with people publicly um, and personally. And so uh, you can find a lot from me there. Um, and uh, my email address is always open. I'm always willing to you know, have a conversation with people. And so my email address is my first name at graveshallcap.com. And so uh, LinkedIn. So LinkedIn, uh, my website, and my email address, all great places to, to connect with me. Awesome, Bakari. I will put all those in the show notes at builtthesouth.com. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode between John and Bakari. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you want to help support Built to Sell Radio, you can do so by sharing this episode out with a friend or colleague. Also, if you want to watch today's full video interview, then head over to our YouTube channel, which you can find at Built to Sell Radio. Again, for show notes and links to everything referenced in today's episode, including some information on SBA loans and others in different countries, be sure to visit our episode page, which you can find at Built to Sell. Com. Special thanks to Dennis Labatagla for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.